Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. Day Money. How are you doing, Linz? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Well, thanks so much for uh, hanging out with me for a bit today. I am... So for everybody listening, Justin is first and foremost, my brother-in-law. Full disclosure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I know you as the smart scientist slash professor. And so first, what is your actual title? And then I want to talk about how you got into it, what it is that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, Linz, for, for having me on this. So I'm thrilled to talk to you about, you know, what we do and you know, basically, it's been my career for the last 20 years, give or take. Now, I feel like I've been in it forever, which I kind of have from grad wow. school till now. So, um, so yeah, so I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Minnesota. Um, I have joint appointments in the Department of Urology. Uh, so that's kind of my main title here as my full academic job. And then I have a, a kind of a second job, quote unquote, second job, uh, where I work as chief science officer of a small biotech company known as Astron Biosciences. So I work there in my in my free time, if there is any, uh, to kind of help push that company company forward as well. So those are kind of the two main gigs that I'm I'm doing right now. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I was hoping that you could talk about your your second thing too, because I didn't know how much of that was up and going and what's been what's been taking place since I know we talked about when it was first starting. So, okay. With what you do, you are constantly researching cancer. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I can, so an academic job has a lot of parts to it. So, you know, not only do we run a research lab, so I have about nine people in my lab ranging from masters, you know, lab technicians, master's students, PhD students, and postdoctoral fellows. Uh, and I even have a clinical fellow in the lab right now. So that's that's kind of how the lab is made up. And everyone in that lab has different projects that they study and try to understand you know, mechanisms of, of cancer, in particular prostate cancer, because that's the main focus of what my laboratory does here at the university. And you know, we we try to look for, you know, how did certain proteins or certain genes drive the disease? Can we target those proteins to maybe treat the disease? Can we find certain biomarkers, you know, which are you know, proteins in the blood or proteins in the, in the tissues from those tumors that may help predict treatment response or may help to determine whether the cancer is a bad cancer or a good cancer. Um, so those are all the different things that, that my laboratory does. And that's most of my time here. It's about 80, 90%. And then the rest of the time is spent teaching. So we actually teach um, a little bit, not as much as what a typical undergraduate teacher would would do. But I do have two courses that I co-direct uh, where we teach PhD level students uh, in the fall. So my fall stay pretty busy with, with teaching in addition to the research that I do. So those are the two main gamuts. And then within that, you know, we we try to attend conferences on our topics and write papers and write grants to fund to fund our lab. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. And so you're teaching in the fall, you're not teaching in the spring. So you're as of now, yeah. So my my spring load's pretty light. Whether that changes or not is to be determined. Yeah. But as of okay. now, it's 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 pretty non-existent. So that's a good thing, I guess. Okay, that's good. Yeah, because you've got your other gig going on too, which we'll get to. One of the reasons I wanted you to come on is obviously you have such a smart, like scientific mind. And so I want to just like ask questions about I think what are a lot of people's curiosities. I mean, there's not a person that's not afflicted by cancer, whether it's a loved one or themselves. And 
the numbers seem to be rising. I was looking at some stats over the last like few days and it looks like it was in the lower millions in like the mid seventies. And now we're at like around 18 million of people who have cancer and they're projecting like 40 million by 2040. So clearly, you know, I know people can get cancer, uh, it can be passed down through genetics, but clearly this is an environmental thing going on, a cultural thing going on. So what is it that you're seeing or what is what is the the research say are the leading causes for people to get cancer? Yeah. So, you know, you bring up some good points and I think, you know, a few ways to think about it. So in the early 1900s, you know, the average lifespan of a human being was what, 40 years, give or take, you know, worldwide it was maybe 30 to 35 so in the U.S. is around 40. So what's happened over the last hundred and some odd years is that our lifespan has nearly doubled over that time. And cancer is a, is a disease of aging. So you can imagine that, you know, your risk for getting cancer increases as you get older. So obviously someone in their 20s has a very low risk of getting any type of cancer. And someone in their 70s and 80s has a much, much higher risk. And the average risk for someone age 50 and above is about 1% to 2% per year. So that's kind of the incidence rates. But if you're living longer and longer, up to 80, 90, you take that you know, 1% to 2% over 30, 40 years. And right. you know what it turns out is that about 1 in 2 develop cancer in their lifetime. So I think those are, those are the kind of the raw numbers. And they're kind of like breathtaking when you think about it, the, the kind of the prevalence of the disease. And I think there's a lot of factors that play in, and you were hinting at environmental and, and, and other influences. And I think that does play a huge role. So, you know, about 10% of all cancers are genetic. So, you know, these are, these are genes that, you know, you're already susceptible to getting tumors uh, in the first place. To, and, and these are a lot of, of cancers that are usually not common is the wrong way to think about it. These are cancers that if you have these mutations, these are the ones that are quite commonly found, you know, usually blood cancers are the ones that are typically found with certain genomic mutations. Um, so okay. uh, these would be, you know, heritable mutations or, or genes that are passed down from parent to, to, to son or daughter. But that's only about 10%. So what we're finding is obviously 90% is caused by other, other influences and other factors. I think age plays a big role, but you also have to think that other, other influences are, are in play as well. And I was looking at the American Cancer Society to get some numbers as well. Maybe we were looking on the same sites. <laughs> but um, so about 40% of all cancers can actually be prevented, you know, so that's the good, the good news, right? You know, the bad news is, you know, you might, might have a one in two chance of getting cancer in a lifetime, but the good news is, is half of those can probably be prevented just by changing how you live your life every day. So what are some of those factors, right? So, you know, smoking. So smoking is probably the biggest causal factor of lung cancer that has ever been known to man or woman in this case. So, you know, if, if you stop smoking, your risk of lung cancer almost goes down tenfold. So it's pretty, pretty dramatic. And that's really the most causal factor of cancer that we know of today. There's others that are very, very highly contributory to cancer, not really directly causal, but it seems obvious that indeed that they do play a role in, in, in inducing cancer itself. Um, so remember, correlation doesn't always you know, equal causation, but there's a lot of correlation around this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, overweight is a huge one. So, you know, if you're obese, there's a much higher risk of you developing cancers, especially cancers of the epithelial tissues. So those would be like your, your breast cancers, your liver cancers, your, your prostate cancers, so on and so forth. Sedentary lifestyle. So, you know, get out and walk if you can. So get that exercise, eating right, 
you know, some of these things seem quite obvious, right, Lens? I mean, you know, it's like if you can take care of yourself, if you can exercise, eat somewhat of a healthy diet, doesn't mean you have to, you know, eat, you know, eat spinach and and tuna fish every day, but, you know, eat a healthy diet Mm -hmm. and, and you'll be well on your way to reducing your risk of cancer quite dramatically. Now, that doesn't explain everything, but it does play a huge role. And then there's one other factor that that a lot of people probably overlook and don't think about, but it does play a role in in causing uh, different types of cancers, and that's actually microorganisms. So bacteria can actually cause cancer, and viruses can actually cause cancer. So some prominent examples of those are um, hepatitis B and hepatitis C viruses. Those can cause liver cancers. And then you also have uh, human papillomaviruses, which can cause cervical cancers. So most women over the age of 50 that have cervical cancer have HPV viral genomes in their cancer cells. So that's a pretty causal element of, of, that, particular, um, of that particular tumor. And then you know, a funny story around, around the bacteria that can cause cancer. So there's, a, there's a, a stomach or a gut bacteria called H. pylori, all right? And so it grows in your stomach. It can cause ulcers, but it also can cause inflammation and give you stomach cancers. And for the longest time, everyone's like, no way, that doesn't happen. So a scientist back, oh gosh, when was this? Probably in the the 70s or 80s, Barry Marshall actually grew a culture of this bacteria and drank it. And what he found was, is that it gave him stomach ulcers and he was able to treat it with an antibiotic that can treat that type of bacteria. So it's like when people don't believe you, we scientists sometimes get crazy and actually take it upon ourselves and drink the cultures. <laughs> so don't do that. Yeah, don't. I don't recommend anybody do that. But um, but that's what that's what he did at the time, and just to prove that this bacteria can actually you know induce induce that type of of outcome uh, in, in you know in himself. So so I think you know when you add all that together, I think that's why we get these staggering numbers that we're seeing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you pointed out that the lifespan has like doubled as well. And so as with anything, you know, we're, we see more deterioration and and us becoming susceptible to things in our lifespan than maybe before. Of course, we're living longer thanks to advances in medicine, but then we run those risks too. That makes sense. Okay. So I want to know about what you are doing with the startup and some of the things that, that is happening with uh, the research and whether it's prevention or whether it is after a diagnosis, what kinds of, you know, because everybody's familiar with chemotherapy, which is amazing. And, and also, you know, there are like with any kind of drug that's going to actually kill the cancer cells, it's, it's going, it's going in there to kill cells. So then there are adverse effects and things as well. So I know there's constant work on, you know, how to minimize those adverse effects or what other treatments can we give? So if you could speak to that, that would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, the chemotherapy can be very toxic, right? I mean, the the whole purpose of chemotherapy is to attack, you know, they have different mechanisms, but one can attack your DNA. One can attack your microtubules in your cells. So these are the structural units of your cell that help to give it, you know, a form and a shape. So when a, when a drug does that, it's indiscriminate. It'll go after your cancer cells and it'll go after your normal cells. And that's why they're actually quite toxic. And a lot of patients, you know, when they go on chemotherapy, you know, some of them don't tolerate it very well and they have to come up with alternative means to treat their cancers, all right? Whether that's radiation or if possible, you know, even surgery, all right? So some cancers can be cured even with, with surgery. 
So, so you're right. So what we've been trying to figure out is, can we start to identify, you know, certain protein targets or drug targets and in, in, in specific cancers that allow us to use, you know, targeted drugs. So we go after only that protein um, or only that, you know, combination of proteins that can then, you know, be less toxic to the, to the patient, but also, you know, directly target the cancer itself. Mm. So that's really, I think, where the future of, of um, precision oncology or precision medicine is going when it comes to treating cancer types. Um, and we can go into detail about that, you know, if you, if you want to down the road. But, but you know, to get to your question, you know, what, what Astrin's trying to do is it kind of has two fronts. You know, the first front is, can we, can we identify certain proteins in, in cells with patients with advanced cancers? All right, because let's be honest, if a patient has a metastatic cancer, in other words, if their tumors are growing in several different tissue sites in their body, that's not a very good sign, right? I mean, like that's the stage four cancer when it is metastatic, sorry. Metastatic, (laughs) yep. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so that would be considered stage four. You're absolutely right. And and those, 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 the prognosis for those patients is is very grim. You know, I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat it here. So trying to find new therapeutic options for those patients is, is a high priority. And sometimes depending on the age of that patient, they may or may not decide to even undergo treatment, right? I mean, if you're in your 90s, maybe you just want your quality of life to spend time with your family and not have to take, take therapy. And I think that's to be completely respected by on, the, on the patient in those instances. And, and a lot of patients do do that. But if you're in your 40s or 50s and you're one of the unfortunate ones that get diagnosed with a metastatic cancer... You know, maybe you want to try to extend your life as long as possible because you want to see, you know, see your kids for as long as you can. Right. So I think each patient has their own unique circumstance that he or she has to has to figure out. But what we're trying to do is to try to help that patient make those decisions easier by finding these new drug targets that they can take um, with their particular tumor. So what Astrin does is they will find patients that have these aggressive metastatic tumors and we can just take small vials of blood from those patients, usually five or 10 mils. So it's a standard blood draw, which you typically would get at a doctor's office. And then we can take that blood and we can basically run it through some some microfluidic chips, which are basically can fit in the palm of your hand. And this blood then will go through those chips and we can use holographic imaging, which is basically uses light interference. So if, if you ever held anything up to a light, you can see, you know, some areas are translucent, some areas are dense. That's really what holographic imaging does. It tells you what are the dense areas, what are the non-dense areas, and gives you a kind of a unique fingerprint for each cell that goes through that chip. And what we can do then is we can train that data to tell us whether it's a cancer cell or not by adding in, you know, cancer cells that we know are cancer cells or adding in normal human, normal healthy blood that is, that is, should not have cancer cells, right? So over time, we can then identify these cancer cells that are flowing in the blood to then isolate them. So why is that important? Well, most most patients that have metastatic cancers have high levels of these cells circulating in their blood, these cancer cells. So that's usually a poor prognostic factor for a patient. So in other words, you know, that's not a good outcome, right? If you have high levels of these cells in your blood, your outcomes of surviving that disease is very, very poor. Mm-hmm. So what, we're, what we do is we can collect those cells through the, the approach I just mentioned and start to profile them and look for proteins in those cells that can then guide us towards, you know, what targets to think about going after to treat that patient. So it really is kind of a personalized approach where each patient is looked at uniquely to try and find these different proteins that are found in their own tumor cells. Oh. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what, what we do on, on one end of, of the spectrum. 
That's so cool. So with each individual patient, you are looking at their specific, you're trying to isolate the the proteins in their blood so you can better just target that without having to attack kind of all of the cells or. Right. Right. So instead of, instead of giving them like a standard chemotherapy, which, you know, usually is the mainstay of, of treatment for, for patients with really aggressive disease, because they probably have run out of other options, right? I mean, more than likely they've gone through several different rounds of, of, of different drugs that may or may not have been helpful. And then at that point, they're, they're probably moving to like a platinum based chemotherapy or, or a taxane based chemotherapy that, as we talked about earlier, are very toxic. So if we can figure out a way to circumvent that and find new new drug targets that may be beneficial to these patients, then at least we can bypass that that toxic chemotherapeutic approach. Um, you know, we're a ways out from that. I'll be honest, but you know that's the direction we're trying to go. Have there been attempts to do this in the past? Because it seems like okay, well, if I know that chemotherapy works by attacking the vast majority of the cells. It seems like this would be something that people have been attempting to do for a while. So I guess, what does that landscape look like? And then have there been things that have been attempted and failed? And what led you to this, this route of doing it in the, in the way that you guys are targeting them? Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to probably the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, that's when the Human Genome Project took effect. And, you know, everyone probably heard of it. They, you know, yeah. some may know what it is, some may not. So the whole point of that Human Genome Project was to sequence the human genome. All right. We want to know every single base pair that's found in a human to figure out, you know, are there certain mutations that are common among certain groups of, of humans or not, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the benefit of the Human Genome Project, which you know just ended, I think, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, so it took about a decade to do this, was that now we have standardized approaches in the clinic where we can actually go in and profile a person's cancer. So we can go in and look at the genes in that cancer and look, ask, okay, which gene is mutated, and if we can find a gene that's mutated, and we know there's a, a drug target that can that can go after that mutation, then we have a match. And we can give that drug to that patient. So really, I think in the last 15 years is really when it started to skyrocket. Before then, we just didn't have the resources and the tools to do it. So we had to take crude approaches um, to, to treating the cancers. And I also think that's why in the last 15, 20 years, you know, cancer death rates are also declining. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, that's an encouraging sign. You know, we're not close to zero, but the five-year survival rates for every single cancer has increased in the last 20 or 30 years. So that's that's an encouraging sign, right? You know, we're making we're making progress in the right direction, but there's there's still a, a long way to go. So the reason why we want to look at these cells in the blood is because it's an easier approach to get the cells. So a standard approach in the clinic to look at to look at a patient's tumor to determine if that patient has these mutations is to do a tissue biopsy. And if you've had any friends who, who've had parents or themselves have had cancer and have had to undergo a biopsy, maybe you know someone personally that has, it's not the most comfortable thing to do, right? You know, there's these really long needles. They're very scary looking. And they basically, they penetrate, you know, if you have a liver cancer, it penetrates right through your back or right through your gut to try and find that tumor, pick it out and pull it back out. All right. So it's not something, you know, a patient really looks forward to doing. And not only that one time, but several times, right? So what we're trying to do is circumvent that by doing what we call a liquid biopsy, where we can then, you know, take the blood from a patient, 
which is a lot less invasive. All right. You know, it's it still requires a needle insertion into your vein, but it's not nearly as painful as it would a standard tissue biopsy would be. And then we can, you know, the idea is we can look at the same mutations or proteins in those cells as we can from the tissue itself. So we can get the same information just without the, you know, the, the invasiveness of the, of the tissue biopsy that would be needed to do it. So it's a way to kind of, you know, circumvent some of that pain that the patient may undergo. Yeah. Is that possible to do then like with when we're talking skin cancer and, you know, if you have a mole or something and they take it or take a piece of it to um, get the biopsy, could it circumvent that as well? Because I've had the mole removed before and it didn't turn out to be cancerous, but it was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So is that kind of the same thing or with that specific skin cancer, do you need that sample? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm probably not the most qualified to answer that directly, but what I would say is since it's on the surface, it's it's really easy and accessible and the, and the physician knows exactly where to go to, to flush that out. So I, that's a little easier versus kind of going in blind, try and find the, the tumor tissue in, you know, in an internal organ. So yeah. I think from that perspective, it probably makes some sense to go after it directly and, and excise it out. And, you know, a lot of cancers can actually be cured with excision right? You know, surgery. Uh-huh. So, you know, liver cancer, especially if you have a, a localized liver cancer where, you know, stage one, where it hasn't metastasized, you know, to a stage four, if you just, you know, cut that part out that's cancerous, you know, and you're young and healthy or you're healthy and old, whichever it is, as long as you're somewhat healthy and the liver can regenerate itself, you can essentially cure yourself of that cancer. So, there are ways to to also you know get rid of disease or cure disease through through other means than just giving someone a, a drug or a pill. So you know yeah. surgery is one of those ways. Yeah, I had to ask about the skin thing because you know I'm as a born redhead and having to go get my uh, skin checked on a frequent basis. Just wondering if there's any work around there at some point. But there there could be down the road, absolutely. You know and. You know, I, I'll let you get to your question here in a second, but I was just say the other part of what Astrin's trying to do is early detection. So, you know, can we find these cells in the blood at a really early stages before someone may be diagnosed with the disease? And if we can, then that could even help find this cancer early before standard imaging modalities are used, which is typically how you find the cancer. I mean, usually the patient will come into the clinic with some kind of problem, right? right. And then that's how they find it. But if there's a way for us to find it well before then, then there's a way where we could actually cure them of that disease before it becomes a problem. So we're trying to figure that part out too, by looking at their liquid biopsies and their cells in the blood. Wow. I mean, so what would be amazing is if this were part of a, you know, your yearly checkup screening where you had blood drawn and there would be an analysis of whether cancer is present. I mean, that's what you guys are working toward. Yes, that's exactly where we want to go. Um, we're starting with a few cancers right now, like the oral cancers and oral pharyngeal cancers with saliva, actually. So not even blood. You know, you just spit in a tube and we can find cancer cells in, in a tube. So that's kind of cool. But we're also looking at some other can like early stage breast cancers. We're looking at those right now to see if we can detect these cells, you know, early on um, in, in patients that may be suspected of breast cancer. Because you have to first start somewhere with people that have cancer before you can move to people without cancer. So, so that's kind of the direction that we're going there. And, you know, I think our first set of patients we would think about would be the ones in the, in the Medicare coverage, because they usually get home visits from nurses. And so it'd be kind of their standard of care, which they would give, give a vial of blood. And then we would take that blood and look for, for cancer cells. And then we can then determine what kind of cancer it may be if we do find them. 
Sure. Wow. How long ago was it that Aspirin was started? So it was founded in tw- in January of 2021. So we're barely two years old at this point. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people wonder about how it is that they can get involved in helping research, helping whether it's funding or getting the word out, giving people like a a proactive approach when it feels just overwhelming and helpless and vulnerable of like what people can be doing other than taking care of their own personal lifestyle. Like what is it that cancer research really needs? Funding I'm sure would be always number one. Yeah. You know, funding is a big part. I mean, you know, in academia, we get we get our our research grants typically from the NIH. Um, So the NIH has a division called the National Cancer Institute. So that's where we get a lot of our research funding from. There are other other avenues for us to get research, you know, through philanthropy and, and foundations. So I do get some money through the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And, um, you know, funny enough, the Department of Defense actually has research budgets for different cancer types. And one is a prostate cancer research program. They also have breast and liver and kidney, et cetera. So point is, is, you know, support, keep putting support towards the NIH and the NCI. And, you know, that's where majority of us researchers get get the funding from. And, you know, if if you have a particular cancer type that you're, you know, passionate, like passion, I don't know if passion is the right word, but that you really want to advocate for to to increase, you know, awareness or research. There's there's a lot of great foundations out there for each of the cancer types that that you may be wanting to advocate, you know, more awareness on. So I would encourage you to find those and and be active and involved in those as well. And that money does come down to us, um, not necessarily me personally, but it does come down to us to do to do research uh, as well on different different um, areas around clinical trials to just basic mechanisms of understanding how how a cancer may form in the first place. Okay, so you have a is there a prostate cancer foundation that works closely with you guys? So the Prostate Cancer Foundation is a national foundation. Okay, um, but um, but yeah, so you know, like I said, I have received funding from them. You know, I did get a, a Young Investigator Award from them, but that that's now since expired. But they have Challenge Awards as well, which are are good awards to help fund. You know, clinical trial research or translational research, which is kind of your bench to bedside research. And if you go to, I think it's PCF.org. You can go there and you can, you know, check out the kind of research they fund and you know, what they advocate for. Um, the cool thing is the CEO of the, the Prostate Cancer Foundation um, is Chuck Ryan and Dr. Chuck Ryan. And he actually is faculty here at the University of Minnesota. So I know him quite well. So, you know, we interact uh, on occasion here and there. And um, he travels a lot because as CEO, that's what you do, but he does he does work on occasion at the, at the university. So I see him once in a while. Um, so it's a little local connection. Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, you were on uh, TV recently, your interview. I don't even think I've talked yeah. to you about that yet. That was cool. <laughs> you know, my, my 15 seconds of fame, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what were they interviewing you for? What was that about again? So that was that was around Astrin's, Astrin Biosciences Technology. And really, you know, they just were curious and wanted to know more about what we did and, and how we go about, you know, trying to, um, you know, profile these cells from the blood and how we go about finding new, you know, drug targets and therapies for patients with with advanced cancers. So that was kind of the the synopsis of that. Cool. That was on Fox, right? 
Yes, Fox 9, I don't know what, three weeks ago now? Two or yeah. three weeks ago? Yeah. Steph sent us the video. We were all pretty excited. So I see you writing or working on grants a lot. So will you explain kind of the grant process and how that works into your field and why that's so important? Yeah. Oh, you really want to get me riled up, don't you, Linz? <laughs> I so it, it's a long, tedious process. Uh, it's really not the most, you know, some some faculty members love it. They love that that rat race of, of writing grants and trying to get funding. I despise it. It's not the most fun thing in my job, you know, it's but it's a necessary component of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, most of our funding comes to the NIH. So we typically write grants to them. And the grants that we typically write uh, are called R01s, R01. So that's just kind of the mechanism that they call it. And these are typically five-year grants and they can range from, you know, 1.25 million to up to $5 million over five years. So, so what we do is we'll write a 12-page grant that kind of describes the problem that we want to uh, tackle. And usually we have uh, specific aims. So it aims as a component of the research that we want to talk about in detail and the question that we want to answer and how we're going to go about it scientifically. So we do that for like two or three aims. And then, you know, hopefully it all comes together in a nice, neat package and we send it off to the NIH and then it gets reviewed. And typically there's three reviewers that will review the grant. There's a primary reviewer and then there's a secondary and a tertiary reviewer. And the primary reviewer usually has the most weight. So, you know, if you catch the primary reviewer at a bad time and they review your grant poorly, then, you know, I guess you're SOL, right? There's not much you can do. So it's a very weird system but it does help to keep us in check a little bit, right? I mean, you know, for, for when we publish our papers or when we write grants, there's peer review and the peer review helps to, you know, you know, push back on the science we're trying to do. You know, they they basically say, well, hey, you proposed this, you know, aspect of, of understanding, you know, how do cancer cells grow? But we think you probably forgot about this aspect of it. Why did you not include, why did you not include that? Or, you're, you didn't con- include a control in this experiment. If you don't have this control, you're not going to be able to interpret your results appropriately. Mm-hmm. So you get dinged on those types of things. So that's the purpose of a reviewer. And the same holds true for, for, our, for our papers when we try to publish those too. So that's kind of the process of how it goes. And then it gets scored. And then those reviewers meet at a study section of about 10 or 15 of those peer reviews, peer reviewers. And they discuss all the grants that were submitted into that study section, you know, and one of my one of those would be my grant, for example. Mm-hmm. And if it was scored well, then they'll discuss it. They'll talk about the pros and cons of the grant and then they'll re rescore it. And a score of one is really good. A score of 10 is really bad. So it's the opposite of gymnastics. So, you know, <laughs> you, you don't want a one in gymnastics, but you definitely want a one in science. So we, you know, we get those scores. And then if it falls within a certain pay line then you get it funded. If it doesn't, you don't, and you resubmit another time. So that's in essence how it works. So it's a very slow, arduous process. So from the date of submission to the, you know, say you submit it and that that grant gets funded, you will not see that money for a year from roughly the date you submit that grant. So it takes about a year from start to finish. So it's a very, very long, long process involved. Okay. That was, I had two questions with that. One was, are you the one right when you write the grant, figuring out how much money uh, this research is going to cost as part of the grant? We do have to put we do have to put budgets in absolutely, and we have to put in detailed budgets. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, personnel costs are the biggest; they're about 70, 60 to seventy percent of our costs, and everything else is 
going to be, you know, research supplies and, and, you know, things like that. Okay. My other question is with this primary person who's looking over the grants, seems like a, a big job. So who is this person? What's like their background? Yeah, that's a big responsibility to be looking at all of these proposed research projects. Yeah. So the, you know, I might screw the structure up a little bit, but here's, here's how my understanding of the structure. So the NIH has, you know, divisions, subdivision is one of which is the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. So if you do cancer research, your grant's going to go there. Within the Cancer Institute, there's about 10 to 15 study sections. All right. And those study sections will then contain you know, a program officer. This program officer is the person that kind of oversees that study section. And he or she then will go out and recruit about 10 to 15 peer reviewers. And these peer reviewers are people like me. So, you know, um, ranging from assistant professors to full professors um, that are experts in roughly in the cancer area and in different aspects. So some may be interested in, in, you know, how a cancer cell grows and others may be interested in how a cancer cell dies, right? But in essence, it's kind of all in the cancer field. So the program officer is typically someone who has a PhD, so they have a science background. And then obviously all the peer reviewers are going to be people that are, you know, professors at, at different universities across the country. So that's typically who reviews your, your grants. And then, you know, same thing for, for peer review for manuscripts. It's kind of the same concept. Okay. So seems to be a fair amount of checks and balances. Like, Oh yeah. It's almost so much to where it's frustrating, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, on average, how many are proposed that get shut down? Yeah. So the funding rate right now at the NCI is about 10 to 11%. So it's pretty poor. So, you know, we have to put in a lot of grants to get funding and that's why it takes up a lot of our time, but that's just kind of where we are these days. You know, the the NCI at one point had funding rates in the 20 to 25th percentile. So, you know, one in four, one in five to one in four grants would get funded. And now we're down to more like one in one in 10, one in nine grants get funded. So we need to kind of shift that tide and, and get it back at least into the mid-teens because it does it does weigh on you and it becomes you know, a situation where, you know, it's dire, right? You just don't want to, sometimes you just don't want to write grants because you're like, why am I doing this? It's not going to get funded, right? You just start to develop that attitude. And I don't know, I don't think that's a good attitude to start to have when you're trying to push forward, you know, your your scientific program at, at the university. Are there certain things that seem to get pushed forward? Like with science, do you find that there are trends where they're like, oh yeah, more of these are are getting backed right now because of maybe it's because of mortality has increased or it's what people are asking for. Are those, do you see those kinds of trends? Yes. You know, those things ebbs, it ebbs and flows, you know, like in the, in the early two thousands, mid two thousands, you know, if you had a, a grant probably written on understanding, you know, gene mutations and cancer genomics, you had a high chance of getting it funded because I was like this, the soup du jour. Right. So you know, that was the grant of the day. So they, that's what they, that's what they funded. And, you know, so you, you do see those cycles, um, you, you know, sometimes professors will try to, you know, change their research programs to fit that, that mode so that they have a better chance of getting funded. I don't really operate that way. I operate and I'm going to do what I'm interested in doing. And if they don't review it favorably and don't like it, well, I, I view that that's on them. That's not on me, but I just have to find a way to better convince them is really how I would view that. So, 
totally different industry, but same way. It's one of the, my frustrations with traditional publishing that I noticed is there are authors that will specifically write to a thriving market and demographic because like when Harry Potter was popular or Twilight or a lot of the fantasy ones, you had authors shifting what they're writing specifically so they could sell. Then you also have publishing companies. They typically only pick up what is trending and what's going to sell because at the end of the day, a book to them is a commodity and they want to, you know, so I've always been the same way too, where I don't, I don't just pick up something because that's the trend or that's what's going to generate things. So mm-hmm. same page, brother. Yeah. Well, and the, the hard thing too, is, you know, when you have to write a grant, you have to generate preliminary data and you have to have a lot of it. If you don't have sufficient preliminary data to convince a reviewer that that direction you're moving is a worthwhile question to answer and you don't and you don't have the data to support it or back it up, that grant's going to get trashed in a heartbeat. You know, you're not going to have a chance. So be, to be able to pivot like that is you have to spend a lot of resources and time in your lab just to build up that data that you need to go in and submit those larger grants. So it does require some commitment from the PI to do that. And I just I prefer to stay the course and I figure I figure over time the science and the interest will come back to what I'm interested in. And, and then I'll hopefully reap the benefits at that at that time. But the same is true in publishing. You're exactly right. I mean, there's three big journals in our field, nature, science, and cell, right? We call that the big three. Mm-hmm. So those three journals, they like to publish what's hot, no doubt about it. And they will they will reject a paper if they don't think it's hot enough, right? You know, it's not sexy enough. Right. And so then you have to go to a different journal and that's just how they how they function. And it's, you know, it's no different probably like you just said in, in your in your area of publishing too. So it's just kind yeah. of, yeah. It's frustrating. And I, I mean, I get if, if they're trying to sell and, and make more money, but to me, it completely waters down the creative process in my, in my field. And then for you, it's like the, the research and the, that process, because it's, yeah, it takes away from, I think the essence of what's behind everything. Yeah. Well, it, you know, unfortunately we're incentivized, incentivized is, I don't know, that's kind of the right word. And we're not monetarily incentivized, but we're incentivized based on um, moving up the ladder, right? So from an assistant to an associate professor with tenure to full professor by publishing, through publishing, right? That's our currency. So, you know, it, right or wrong, that's what they, that's what they encourage you to do. It's like publish or perish. Well, it's very true. You know, you have to publish, so if you're going to publish, you want to try and try and get it out there as soon as you can. And sometimes it can be to the detriment of advancing science, because a lot of times some of these papers that come out are just are complete crap. So you have to go in and try and decipher what's the crap and what's not the crap when that gets published these days. So wow. what are some of the the best like open source journals and things that people can go to as far as reading research on cancer and the things that are newest, latest data, latest uh, things that are coming out? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of cancer journals. Some are open source, some are not. Some are open source if you pay them enough. So it's a very funny dynamic that we have in this in the, in the academic world where we we review papers for free. And then we provide our comments on those papers back to the editors and the editors publish that paper. They charge the authors who wrote the paper money to publish it, but the authors don't get any money in royalties when the, when they sell that journal to, you know, libraries for subscription. It's a very weird, mm. weird process. So we do the research, we publish it. We got to pay. We don't get any royalties and we review it for free. It, it's very strange. The point <laughs> is, is that 
if you pay them enough money, you can have it open source. So they have a standard fee and then they have an open source fee, which is obviously more expensive. So it depends on whether the author wants to pay that enhanced fee to make it open source. So here's here's a few journals I'll just throw out there. And I you know I can't promise you that you're going to find all these papers readily available. But if you do have listeners out there who want to know about a paper and they can't access it, please reach out to me. I can send you the PDF. It's pretty easy. So, you know, if happy to do it so they can they can reach out and I can send them the PDF of whatever paper they want. So clinical trial papers, New England Journal of Medicine is really the top notch one. Right. So if you want to look at some recent clinical trials in cancer or other diseases, you know, that's where a lot of those those clinical trials will go. Journal of Clinical Oncology or JCO. That's another one. So those are kind of the two big clinical trial journals. For basic science or translational journals, you have nature medicine, you have cancer research, you have clinical cancer research, you have cancer discovery. But those are going to be more like deep in the enthralls of science, right? So you have to be a hardcore to really have a curiosity to know what's going on to want to read those papers. I think. <laughs> um, you know, if you, you know, and and then, you know, there's other tiers even below that, but you know, like molecular cancer research, can, um, molecular cancer therapeutics, oncogene, you know, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different journals and they're all at different tiers. But if you really want to see what's going on with the clinical trials, you know, keep an eye on the New England Journal, um, JCO, and those will give you a, a lot of what's going on. Mm, that's cool. That's helpful. You can also go to clinicaltrials.gov and you can do keyword searches for certain cancer types and you can see what clinical trials are out there for a particular disease or for a particular you know, drug or intervention that you might be interested in looking at and see what's out there. You can do some querying on that as well. And that's free. So anyone can get access to that. Oh, cool. So with Astrin, what does the landscape look like uh, going forward? Like, what can you say time-wise of what you're looking to accomplish in the next several years? Or what kind of markers did you get or parameters with grants, if that's how that works as well? Yeah. So let's let's talk about the funding side first, and then I can move into kind of the, the science side. So, so right now we're two years old. We have some seed funding that can get us through about a year, year and a half. We just put in a, a, a small business grant uh, that we just submitted yesterday. So that's off my plate, thank goodness. So that will hopefully gets funded. That'll increase our, our runway a little bit. And then we're trying to go out and get our Series A funding this summer. So we're trying to you know recruit in a, a few different venture capital firms to want to invest into our company to give us you know a longer runway so we can accomplish the goals of what we want to do. So what are those goals? Well, I think we have two main goals that we want to want to accomplish. One is, like I said, on the late stage side, we want to develop companion diagnostics for cancer. So what's a companion diagnostic? Well, it's something that if we can take cells from a patient and profile those cells for certain proteins, then we can determine if the presence or absence of that protein may predict that whether a drug will work or not, right? So in essence, that's what we're trying to do. And so we're starting in prostate cancer, uh, but we'll move to other cancer types as well as we as we go forward. But that'll be kind of our first priorities in prostate. And then the second is can we detect cancers early? So that's, you know, where our big focus is going to be because, you know, I think that if if we can prevent people from getting cancer in the first place, and I know that sounds kind of strange, you know, now that I say it out loud, but, but if we can do that, you know, imagine A, all the lives that will be saved and B, all the money that will be saved on the back end of treating these, these patients with the disease. I mean, cancer therapies, you know, some of them can be very expensive. And, you know, you know, especially the new immunotherapies, you know, they can be $100,000 a year for a particular therapy. 
And, you know, in my personal opinion, I, I would hate to see anyone have to go bankrupt or sell their house because they were unfortunate enough to get cancer. So maybe we can thwart that and, and work backwards and try and figure out a way to prevent it from even happening in the first place. And that goes back to lifestyle changes as well, in addition to, you know, looking at this from a from a scientific or medical perspective. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I wanted you to speak to what the future looks like with cancer research in that when I saw the number of 40 million in 2040 is what's projected, you know, how many people are projected to get cancer. I just, I don't think that's accurate because I think the the science is going to advance to circumvent those numbers so they don't get to that point. I think people are learning a lot about their lifestyle and how that directly correlates. As you said, you know, 40% of cancers are preventable. And so with people really digging into their nutrition, their sedentary or active lifestyle, and then like all of the products we're using, I mean, I know there are a lot of products with endocrine disruptors and can cause a bunch of havocs in our body. But there's also a lot of products that have like are foods that have glyphosate in them that essentially from Roundup and those have been linked to cancers. And so better choosing foods and then like lobbying and arguing for foods that don't have those in them anymore, I think is going to be big in the next decade because we're just starting to see the long-term effects. I mean, aren't cancers in in farmers, haven't those kind of been going hand in hand in the last like 20 years? Good question. I do not know the answer to that, (laughs) (laughs) but it's something I can look into and see if there is any kind of connection there. You know, I I, I will say the the 40 million number, I think that's the number you said, or was it 80 million in 40 years? I don't remember how you said it, but what I saw was 40 million in 24 In 24 years. Okay. So you can look at that in two different ways. All right. You're looking at it in the, in the light that wow, a lot of people are going to get cancer. I could look at it in the light that a lot of people are going to get cancer, but they're also living longer with the disease. Yeah. Right. So you can look at it from different perspectives and kind of come to the same conclusion or, you know, look at the same data and come to different conclusions, I guess. So I agree. I I hope that number shrinks. I mean, in general, I want the, the number to shrink. But at the same time, if people are living longer with the disease, that's also a good thing too, right? I mean, with a lot of people have to understand is is prostate cancer is not just one disease. Breast cancer is not just one disease. I mean, there's in breast cancer alone, there's four or five different subtypes and we're finding new subtypes every month, it seems. Mm. So trying to treat one person's breast cancer the same as someone else's breast cancer is not how it works anymore. You know, that's where, you know, the new genomic technologies have come along and that's where, you know, all these other other experimental approaches to find out what subtype you may have has really been beneficial. Uh, Lung cancer, there's at least 10 or 12 different types of lung cancers. So, you know, that's what we have to think about too, is that these tumors are actually quite heterogeneous. They're quite different from each other, even though they derive from the same tissue source. So that causes a, that poses a problem for us as scientists trying to then, you know, stave off and, and fight the disease. And I think that's why this concept of personalized medicine or precision medicine is really going to take take hold going forward, because I think each patient's going to have to be treated as its own individual entity to look at the tumor and figure out what's going on inside that tumor um, versus giving a, a pan treatment approach, which yeah. was done in the past. Yeah. 
Well, that's really encouraging. I mean, because we are so different and thinking of, well, first of all, I didn't know there, what did you say? 12 different types of lung cancer. Yeah. So if if you just, if you classify them based on like different genomic mutations, all right. So, you know, there's a one class of lung cancers that have EGFR mutations, it's a type of kinase, you know, don't need to really worry about that is, but the point is that's one type of lung cancer. There's another type that has a, a different fusion proteins where two genes from different chromosomes fuse together and create a whole new protein all by itself. And there's different types of genes that are involved in that that create different subtypes of lung cancer as well. So yeah, so there's there's a lot of subtypes out there that that exist. The good news is for a lot of these cancers that have these gene fusions or gene mutations, there are targeted drugs that go after and try to treat those those particular tumors. Okay. And th- so those drugs exist right now where they're yep. one. Okay. Yep, they do. Good. Um, I didn't know if there was like, if you guys have a website where you can kind of invite people to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a, a Twitter and, and LinkedIn accounts, but I, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't really use Twitter that often anymore, but at Dr. Justin Drake, that's on my, my Twitter feed. And then you go to LinkedIn under Justin M. Drake, you'll find, you know, and I'll send you the links, Lens, if in case people want to connect with me on, okay. on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And then for Astron Biosciences, astronbio.com. That's our website. So there you can go and read about, you know, everyone involved in the company. We have all the different names of people ranging from the CEO all the way down to the, to the lab technicians who do a lot of the work processing the blood from these patients. So truly is a team effort at that company. And um, for those of you that are scientifically interested and inclined, um, we are hiring. So, you know, feel free to, to apply. We'd love to, to have you on board. Very cool. Yeah, it's so inspiring and exciting to think about what you guys are doing and where we could be headed in the future. I really think that it's going to be, yeah, exciting to watch where this company goes and where you guys take your research. Yeah, well, thanks, Lindsay. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll end on a positive note because I know, you know, the word cancer scares a lot of people. And what I what I don't want is that word to be the word it is now. It's like a four-letter word these days. Um, what I'm hoping is we can redefine the word to where it's something that is my cancer is acting up or my cancer was cured, you know? And I think we're going to get there. For, you know, certain cancers are going to be easier than others, you know, I'll be honest. But, you know, some cancers actually we can cure today, believe it or not. If you go back, there was a Time article back in the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, and it was it was on Gleevec, which is a matinib, which is this drug that targets this BCR able gene fusion in, in CML. So that's a leukemia. And what they found is that that drug basically can can cure these patients of that of that disease. So unfortunately, these patients had this gene fusion where one part of a protein fused to another part of a protein. But the cool thing is it made a unique protein that you can go after with the drug that doesn't target anything else in the body because it's a it's a novel, unique protein. So, you know, there was a drug made for that and patients that have that gene fusion with CML go on to live normal lives like they versus the general population who never had CML. All right. So that really brought the hype of, of targeted medicine to, to light. And this was in the early 2000s. Now, maybe it hyped it up too much because we haven't made a ton of progress to cures with these targeted therapies since then. But I think we're learning a lot with the advent of, of genomics and looking at gene mutations in patients to figure out you know, how to go about this uh, in, in, in the future. And then I'll say for, for prostate cancer, you know, if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, there's an 80% chance you can be cured of the disease by simply detecting it early enough. Early detection is very key. There's lots of cancers 
where you can go and get screened for early detection. You know, uh, colon, breast, and prostate are the three big ones, but cervical cancer is another one um, as well. And if you go and get screened early enough, you can get that cancer before it does become a problem. And, you know, you know, in prostate, that's about 80%. So, you know, there is hope after you get diagnosed with some of these cancers that you can go on to live a normal life for, for years, if not decades after diagnosis. Um, and, you know, we've made a lot of progress in that in that front. And like I said before, almost every cancer out there, their five-year survival rates have gone up over the last 30 or 40 years. Some have gone from the teens all the way up into the 50%, and some have gone from the 60, 70% into the 90%. So, you know, there is a lot of progress being made. Hope is not all lost in that area, um, but we still have a lot of work to do, and that's what that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm I'm so proud of the work that you're doing, and I'm fortunate that you've, I mean, we talk about what you've done before. We've had some side conversations, but I've never really dug in to get the full story. And so thank you so much. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm very hopeful for where all this is going. And I'm glad you ended on that note. I think words hold up like a lot of weight and people can, you know, you say the word and people can just kind of like shut down, but I think you're right. We can, we can change the meaning of it and, and really start to develop a relationship with cancer in that it is not the end road. Exactly. The hope is not to make it a death sentence like it used to be back in the day. And, you know, we're making a lot of progress that direction and, you know, we'll make even more, you know, throughout our generation and our, our kids' generation for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, thank you so much. Um, I get to see you tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks, Linz. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to come on. It was it was great talking to you about this and happy to come on anytime in the future. If, if you want to talk more about it, you know, awesome. I'd love, love to do it. Absolutely. All right. Father, we'll see you soon. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye.